Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that you have plans for us related to these verses today. We recognize, Lord, that your word is already powerful. Thank you, Lord, that it is what it is and what you intend it to be in us. We want our hearts to be receptive. Help us, Lord, to receive what you have. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to be tuned in spiritually. We yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Guide us. Convict us. Comfort us. We pray, Lord, that we would be molded and shaped and fashioned by your word, through your spirit today. We want to be doers of your word. We don't want to be hearers only deceiving ourselves. So, Lord, make application as only you can. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today, the Lord directed my heart to look at the purpose of the church and how it's supposed to function. Yesterday, I was at a men's retreat. Many of you know that. We've been announcing it for a while. Tent Days with Timothy. And I was one of the privileged to be one of the teachers, the speakers there. I was limited to 20 minutes, which is very difficult for any preacher to be limited like that. I was very distracted by how much time I was taking and how, um, you know, it's like at the end, of, you know, sometimes your, your month goes longer than your, your check, you know, <laughs> and it was kind of like my notes went longer than my time. And, uh, but I had a great time and the other men that came had a great time. I'm hoping that next year we'll even have more guys take advantage of that day, set aside, we went through the whole book of First Timothy and so forth. But one of the things that was covered there as, and, and dealt with among many things, <laughs> going through the old book of Timothy, you can imagine, is the, to 1 Timothy 3.15, which Paul was writing to Timothy and said this, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. God wants all of us to know as believers, as disciples of his, how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. The word church means the called out ones. We've been called out of the world. And so we need to understand that when we gather here, the church is gathering. And when we gather as believers, God refers to it as the house of God in that sense, where we're coming together and we're among one another. It could be anywhere. It could be outside. I have friends that pastor churches in Hawaii that are having services out on the beach. Now, wouldn't that be distracting? 
<laughs> I try to focus when, you know, there's that right there. I remember trying to go to college at one point, and um, I was taking an astronomy class at uh, the city college in Santa Barbara. And the class was right next to the ocean, and the door was open, and I'm trying to focus on Venus in class when I'm looking at the ocean. It's very difficult to do, and, you know, there's issues with me. You know that. Uh, But it was, it's so important for us to understand why God has set things up the way he set things up. It's very important because he has set things up for a very, to accomplish a very specific uh, purpose related to how he set the church up. Leaders don't get to decide what the church is about. Leaders don't get to decide what we're going to do when we gather. It's all been laid out in Acts 2.42, those things that the early church practiced, and also this passage. It's been laid out very clear of what the church is going to be about. We don't get to experiment on the body of Christ. We don't get to decide, oh, we're going to do this now. Now we're into this. I'm talking about systemic changes of now the church, now we're into this, and now this book I read, so now we're doing this whole thing and all of that. It has to support Acts 2.42. One of the things I want to do eventually is have like a big graph of Acts 2.42 and have all the things that we're doing be kind of put in that verse and pointing to each part of that verse where it's applicable for what we're doing just to show that if it doesn't fall into those things, then we're not to be a part of those things. God has limited it because the things that we are supposed to be a part of that he's laid out very specifically are very important and we don't have any extra time to waste related to what we should be engaged in. So we'll get to some of those in a moment. So you and I need to know the purpose of the church forwards and backwards. We need to know for sure, and that's why I reference it a lot. I talk about the purpose of the church in different ways because we need to be reminded and it needs to be reinforced in us so that if we're ever in another area or whatever, we know, okay, this is what the church is supposed to be about. There's a lot of confusion out there. We need to know it because it's not just head knowledge that we need to know, obviously. We need to walk in it. We need to function appropriately. We need to grow in it. There's so much confusion out there. And I blame pastors because they're the ones that are leading the churches. And I recognize that a lot of them have had bad models. There's a lot of models out there. There's a lot of different... I mean, I get so much junk mail. I get marketed to on social media. and all, It's amazing how many different things. It's just read the Bible. It's just not complicated. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, and which requires the grace of God and the power of God, of course. But it, I recognize there's a lot of different models out there. And when we don't function the way that God's called us to function, it hurts the body of Christ. It causes us to not grow like God intends. And it causes people to not receive Christ as much. I mean, there's all kinds of implications. He knew what he was doing. Just like with marriage. God knows how marriage is supposed to function. He invented it. When you invent something, you kind of know how it works and how it's supposed to work, right? And, and so he knows that, and he, he, he's one that thought up the church and how it should function. So why would you think, or I think, that there, he's given us that freedom, so to speak, to decide what the church is supposed to be about and what the church is supposed to be doing? So in his word, he intends for us to be inoculated against all the craziness and all the wacky models and all of that so that we're never duped again. Sometimes people move on to other churches, and it's surprising to me sometimes of how, what, how their process of determining the next church. And one of the things we need to all look at in any given situation is, is the purpose of the church biblically going on in that particular fellowship. So let's move on. We'll start Ephesians as we look at this now. And, and I want you to know, if you're not familiar with Ephesians, some of us are new to the Bible, that Paul wrote this book to the church of Ephesus. And it's divided up into two major divisions. Chapters 1 through 3 articulate by the Holy Spirit our inheritance in Christ. And, it, and, and there's so much more than just the three chapters, but there's a lot in those three chapters, especially chapter 1. Any English teacher will tell you that's the longest run-on sentence in chapter 1 that they've probably ever even heard of, let alone... Um, scene and writing, but it's, it's this long, long run-on sentence of our inheritance in Christ. And he goes on in chapter 2, and he goes on in chapter 3. But then when he gets to chapter 4, it changes. And chapters 4 through 6 
demonstrate and reveal how we're supposed to properly respond to that amazing inheritance that we have in Christ. And chapter 4 specifically, and this is the first thing that he deals with in chapter 4, is the subject of unity. Of all the things that God could have started with, what would you have started with? How to respond to this great inheritance. What are the, if you're going to respond, what's the first thing that he mentions? Would you have chosen the subject of unity? Probably not. I know I wouldn't have. I'd be starting with, who knows what, worship or whatever. So he, he starts with unity. And we can think unity in the sense of getting along with other churches and all of that. And there's one body. And all of that is completely applicable, biblical all laid out according to John 17, where Jesus prayed that we'd be one, one mind, one heart, all those things. Paul speaks of it. But this is, first of all, the first application is to the the church in Ephesus. He's writing to this church, and he's speaking about unity. And what we're going to see as we go through this chapter is that the way that the church has been set up and the function of the church and how God's laid it out is a unity-based function. He's going to describe how the church should be in unity in walking in how God has set things up. So the big picture is this. Just think of circles. And, and they get more and more, they smaller and smaller. It gets more specific the closer you get to this inner circle, right? So the big outer circle, God's purpose, is that he would be glorified and we would know him. But then he, this next circle is our mission as the church, our mission. And that's articulated in Matthew chapter 28, that we're called to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded them. And so we're called to make disciples. That's the purpose of when the church gathers, is to make disciples. But why? Why does God want disciples made? Well, he wants us to grow. He wants us to know him better, of course. But that purpose of when we come together and disciples are made is to bring us into maturity so that we would be not only willing but equipped to be able to go out and fulfill the mission of winning the lost and people coming to Christ. And then when they come to Christ out there in the world, there's no recorded conversion in the book of Acts in a church. In synagogues, yes, but that's missions. In a Christian church, there's no recorded example of someone becoming to Christ inside of a church. Now, we know what happened, of course. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 14 when he said, if you all come together and you're all speaking in tongues at the same time, if an unbeliever comes in among you, he's going to think you're crazy. So we know what happened. Of course, people invited people to, to be among them. That's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. People come to Christ in church because anytime there's unbelievers present, The gospel needs to be preached. But what you see in the book of Acts is they went out. They went out. He didn't say, go go into all the church and preach the gospel or or to make disciples. He said, go into all the world. So that's that's what our mission is. Our mission is to preach the gospel and win souls to Christ as Christians. Every Christian, God expects them to be able to reproduce to be able to lead someone to Christ, to know the gospel well enough, and it's not super complicated, and to be able to preach the gospel. And he said the harvest is ripe. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into the harvest field. There's no harvest fields in, in the sense of how he intended it in buildings. The harvest field is outside, and it requires work. It requires hard work to preach the gospel out there. So then they get saved out there, they receive Christ, and then they come in to be made into a disciple, to grow into maturity, to where they're willing to go out and preach the gospel, and it all starts again. That's the big picture. That's what God intends. And maybe you've never seen that before. Maybe it's never clicked in your mind. What what are we doing? Why are we doing this? I think this should be covered in every new believers class. We're going to be having new believers classes, by the way, to help them understand what just happened to them, and how do they fit into the overall big picture of things, what God is doing? And sometimes believers can go, especially in other environments, for years without knowing that and finding out that. And so we need to understand that. Let's look at verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 4. 
We're told this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So that's, he's been talking about all these things. Paul's in prison. Notice he doesn't say he's the prisoner of Rome. He's the prisoner of the Lord. God is sovereign over a situation. He took advantage of that situation, and many people came to Christ as a result of that. He was chained to guards that had to listen to Paul. <laughs> Just think about that. You're chained to the Apostle Paul. I think you might hear the gospel a little bit, you know, and they would go in shifts and all of that. So he's writing this letter, making the most of his situation, and he says, I beseech you. It means, I beg you, please. I implore you. I beg you. He doesn't say, you have to. We do in the sense of what God intends, but he knows that that has to be a choice of theirs. They have to yield their lives. You know, it says in 1 John that we love him because he first loved us. And our whole entire Christian walk is a response to what he's already done for us. We don't initiate things with God and get him, try to get him to respond. He's already initiated everything with us, and we need to respond to him. It's beautiful. But he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. All the things I've been saying, chapters 1 through 3, that great calling, that great inheritance, now walk worthy of that. Now, if we were honest, we would all say we don't, none of us do, because of the incredible height and breadth and depth of that inheritance and how great it is that none of us fully do that. But he's called us to keep growing and keep going deeper in the things of him to be able to do that. He tells us how, in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, why would he have to tell us to bear with one another? Why in the world? He just doesn't even know us. How, that's that church. That's Ephesus. Man, they should have been, they probably were pretty bad if he had to say that. No, that, that's the truth with all of us. Sometimes we are stumbled when we see people in the church that are, that are believers do things that are, are hurtful or wrong or whatever, forgetting that we do the same things. And, and so it, there's no excuse for it, obviously, but he says we need to be lowly in our hearts, humble, with gentleness, with long-suffering and patience, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring. Look at that word endeavoring. Endeavoring. Purpose. It's a purposeful thing, a deliberate thing that we're yielding to, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit? Why does he say that? Because the Spirit's the one that puts the body of Christ together in the first place. God has used the agent of the Holy Spirit to place us in the body of Christ when we trusted in Christ. And so he's the one that brought us together. So of course he's going to want us to function in that unity in the bond of peace. You know, peace is a bond that holds together. I remember as a kid seeing the super glue commercials with the guy with the hard hat. Remember that? There was a steel girder, and he had this helmet. He's holding on to it and kicking his legs in the air, and that, that super glue was holding. I don't think I've ever experienced super glue holding quite that well. Um, it does when I get it on my fingers, and then I'm like, okay, I can't get these apart, so I'll just live with that, you know? Do some poses, you know. I don't know, but uh, you know, it's 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 uh, selfies, but it, it it brings people, it locks people together. Peace locks people together. And notice he talks about how much we're unified by the Spirit already, without even trying, without even making an effort. We're already one Christ, uh, one in Christ. We're already one body. Look at verse four. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, in inductive Bible study, one of the first things you would notice is that there's a repeating word there. One. And you would count. How many times is one in there? I'm seeing that. I'm noticing that. And, and you would see that there's this, this thing that's, that we're a part of, that the Holy Spirit has made happen, so much that we have in common. One of the things I say, that I oversee the ministerial association in Manteca. And one of the things I say and remind us there is that we have way more in common than we have differences. Way more in common than we have differences. And so I've said this many times, that God sees us as a larger whole who happen to be individual members, or at least secondarily, we're individual members, 
But in our culture, in our Western culture, we see ourselves as individual members who have to be part of a larger whole. We need to look at things how Christ sees things. Biblically, we are one body first before we're individual members in the sense of how we're, how we're to see who we are in Christ. We have all these things in common, and they're not insignificant things. They're very significant things. But with all of that and with understanding that we're all one in Christ and we're one body and he's the head, and he doesn't want us to lose the, our, our distinction as individuals and as members because we are individual members. That's what he says. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us. See, so yeah, you're part of a larger whole, but don't forget you are individuals as well. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now we're going to see this whole theme. This is in the context of unity and how the the body of Christ, how the church is supposed to function and make disciples. Can we gather together? It's for to make disciples. There's There's a way that God accomplishes that. And the way he has done it is by gifts. And you're going to see this repeating theme throughout the, this chapter. Gift, gifts, gave. He, we, we're just seeing his free gift offered and, and that he's given gifts to the body of Christ. He knows that as individual members, the way that we build one another up and as we contribute, one of the ways that we contribute is through using our gifts. And when we build each other up and we're bound by peace and we're expressing ourselves to one another in love, we're getting our focus off of ourselves and onto others, as I say all the time. We're using our gifts. He's given each one of us in the body of Christ at least one spiritual gift and many with multiple gifts. And so you're going to see that repeating word, gift, give, gave, all these different um, versions of that. Now he kind of gets into this little parathetical issue related to, and it's all related to gifts. Well, let's look at it. Verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts. There's our word. Gifts to men. Now, he, now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what is this talking about? And this can be a controversial passage for all the people that are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But there are different views with this. But the way that I've been able to see this as best as I can is, is that there's this whole thing, and I'm not going to get into too much depth uh, in this, but there's this whole thing of what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross. And remember, he was on the cross, and he said to the, to the thief there, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And at one point they sought a sign and said, no sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the, was, was in, um, the, 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 the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So what he did was, now this is, he's bringing the thief with him. <laughs> so he dies and he goes, there was, two, there was, a, there was in the center of the earth, spirit, in a spiritual realm, there's what's called Hades. And there were two compartments to Hades. There was Abraham's bosom. The Lord Jesus told of this account. I don't believe it's a parable. I believe it's an account where he talks about Lazarus and the rich man, and they go down and all of that. It's in Luke. I believe it's 14 or 15, somewhere in there. And you can read it on your own. But, but he talked about Abraham's bosom, like two compartments. There's what's called Abraham's bosom, where the Old Testament Jews went when they died in faith, looking forward to the Messiah, and they were there in paradise. That's what Jesus said to the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And they were there waiting for the Messiah. So Jesus went down there with the thief. He's there just chilling. <laughs> He's just there hanging out. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. I'm there with all these you know, uh, Old Testament saints and all of that. And he proclaims himself to be the Messiah. He also judged uh, specific demons that were, that were there being held. That's a whole other thing in Second Peter. And so he cleared out Abraham's bosom. And then the other part was of Hades, which still exists today, is that when you die without knowing Christ, that's where you go, awaiting the great white throne judgment, which we see in the end of the book of Revelation. They will be given a body for judgment. 
and they will, res- they will stand before Christ, and their names will not be found in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire, and, and where the, where the uh, beast, uh, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and, and, and all of that are at that point. And so for here, the, we see Jesus going down there and all of that, but this is all, again, this is talking about gifts being given. And when they would conquer a land... They would armies would, would conquer and they would they would receive the, the booty or you know the, the, the goods that's, that they can get and all of that. They would do these Roman processions like parades where they would march the army along and the prisoners and the and the booty and all of that. And then the king would distribute those things to the to the army first, and then they would deliver those things to the people and distribute and share with, with the people. And that's kind of the imagery that he's he's leaning on or drawing from because they would all know what all of this is. So then when he ascended up to heaven, now think of Jesus's reception. We never think of that. We always think of the, the, the ascension from the standpoint of, of, of the disciples because they're looking up and seeing him go into the clouds. We don't think of what's happening on the other end. Think about that. Think about that celebration. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He won. He, he, he triumphed over all of those demonic forces and all of that. We're told in Colossians in chapter 2, triumphing over them on the cross. So the celebration in heaven, the son is back. He, came, he left to go die, and he came and he conquered all of that. And now we're celebrating all of that. And so the last part of that piece of that progression is what they would normally do would be to distribute the gifts. Well, we know at the day of Pentecost... They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then so now from that point on till even in today, he's distributing gifts, the, 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 the booty, so to speak, or the, the blessing of that, of that victory there. And, and so he's going to continue. Now he's going to get specific related to what gifts he's given as a result of that victory. Does that make sense? Does that help? Okay, because anyone that contradicts that is wrong. Just kidding. Okay, now let's, let's look at some of the things that he's going to give. He's giving gifts again. That's, the, that's what we're seeing in the context of how the church should function, how it should be in unity and function properly. Verse 11. And he himself gave. There's our word again. He himself. Who's, who's himself? Jesus. So Jesus is the one that's giving these gifts. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are what's called the office gifts. And they're different because they are kind of leadership roles that uh, are given to the church for a specific purpose. So people ask, are there apostles today? Yes, there are apostles today. There's not the 12. You had to see Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. In Acts chapter 1, Peter referenced that when they're deciding on who should replace Judas. And, and so they had to have seen everything from the beginning. So there's no more 12, but there are apostles. Now, the word apostle is, is the word uh, one who is sent. And, and so when you send somebody, then you're sending them to go be an ambassador. That's the whole picture of, of there were apostles before the time of Christ. In the sense that, well, that got your attention, um, don't, don't start posting things on the, you know, there's not heresy going on right here. I'm talking about in a secular way. So a king would send out an ambassador. He would send out a messenger, a heralder to, to communicate on his behalf. Those were apostles. They weren't Christ's apostles, but they were apostles. So today there are apostles. Those are those that are sent to go plant a new work or to start a new Christian work they're sent out it would be the closest would be like a missionary for us they would if they were going out and planting churches somewhere they would be like an apostle they would be now they're not the 12 they don't have the same they're not being used in the same sense uh, that the early apostles were ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 we're told that the, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets they had a, a unique ministry at that time before, while the church was getting going and before the word of God was canonized or put together uh, that, that they don't have today. But that doesn't mean that the office doesn't exist and it doesn't mean they're not sent and it doesn't mean they're not planting works uh, that are very substantial. Prophets, yes, there's still prophets today. We see it even in the book of Acts. Agabus is one. So a prophet is someone that 
speaks for God. You can have the gift of prophecy. It doesn't mean that you're in leadership, have one of these leadership office gifts that's called prophet. It can be the same person, but most often the gift of prophecy is someone that's not necessarily in, have an office of this, but they are still prophesying and speaking for God. And you have to be very careful. Paul gives the rules for that related to the gift of prophecy in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Very important that we know that. But then he says evangelists. Now evangelists, first of all, let's clear something up. There is no gift of evangelism in the Bible. It doesn't exist. There's no gift of evangelism. And we want to use that as a reason. Well, I don't have that gift, and so I'm kind of not responsible to preach the gospel. No, because the Great Commission was given to all of us. Because he said, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. He just got commanding them to go out and, and make disciples. So it's still, it's still part of what we're called to do. An evangelist is a leadership role, an office gift, where you're called to not only preach the gospel like everybody else, but you're called to help believers know how to preach the gospel. That's what an evangelist is. Bill Sikma, a, a guy that I know that's involved in evangelism explosion, he's an evangelist. He equips people to be able to know how to preach the gospel. And you'll be meeting him as we roll out evangelism explosion coming up in the fall. Um, but, but that's a beautiful gift. And then it says, in some pastors and teachers... Now, sometimes you may hear people reference, well, we, I want the five-fold ministry going on in our church, and that's what they're talking about. They're talking about five, meaning apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The problem is, and I've gone over this before, but some of you are a little bit new, you have to understand that he's talking about one person there when he says pastors and teachers. Notice that the word some is left out just before the word teachers there. Did you see that? It says some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. And the reason why is it because in the original language, there's the word and before every one of those other ones. But then when it comes to, to the right before teachers, it says something different. It's another word. And it's a word that communicates that it's one person. So that's why you'll hear sometimes people say pastor-teacher, pastor-teacher, because it's referring to one office there. Because if you're called to be a pastor, then you're going to have the gift of teaching. But just because you're a teacher, which is another gift of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean that you're a pastor. So we have to know that. There can be two separate things. Now notice that these gifts, these office gifts, were given to the body of Christ by Jesus himself for a very specific purpose. Notice in verse 12, he says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word equipping there is the word they would use to, to, to describe something that was put in its intended condition. They would use this word to describe when a bone was, was mended or a bone was set and healed. And when you, when you put a cast on and you set it, they would use that word to describe that. Or when they were mending their nets, they used this word that, that's here in equipping. So it's putting something that's an intended condition. So in the overall picture of the church and how it's supposed to function, you have disciples being made, but I want to submit to you that there are two pillars to disciples being made, two necessary things happening in the church for disciples to be made properly. And the first pillar is leaders that God has called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Because you do more ministry numerically than leaders do. And so sometimes this whole idea of clergy and laity and all of that kind of blurs that. And sometimes people think, well, that's what we pay you for. You're the one that's doing the ministry. And sometimes pastors refer to the ministry as, you know, what, what, what guys do or people do when they're, when they're full-time and they're, that's what all they do. And they kind of, that's their vocation, so to speak, and all of that. And, and the ministry just means to serve. A minister means servant. So ministry means to serve, and we're all called to work at it. Notice it says work. It requires work. Some people want to be engaged in all kinds of ministry, but they don't want to work. It doesn't work that way. No pun intended. So we have the leadership equips or puts the rest of the body of Christ in its intended condition by various things. Jesus said to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He didn't say, Peter, if you love me, multiply my sheep. 
He didn't say, Peter, if you love me, motivate my sheep. He said, he sure didn't say, Peter, if you love me, fleece my sheep. (laughs) But we see that all over the place, unfortunately. And he said, Peter, if you love me, tend my lambs, care for them. And and, and so there's a two-pronged approach to people being discipled from the leadership standpoint. They equipped through the teaching of the Word of God. Notice it says, edifying of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith. There's our word unity again. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That word perfect means complete. To a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, it's going to happen until the rapture happens. And even then we're going to be growing in heaven. We're going to be, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says, in the ages to come we'll be learning of the riches of His grace. We're going to keep growing even after this life. But in, in this life, while the church is still on the earth and all of those things, He calls us to grow and to become complete. He wants us to, to grow. And, and the main way we see is the Scriptures, look at verse 14, that we should no longer be children. That's talking about spiritual children. Tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's why we need to be grounded in God's Word. That's why you, need to, you and I need to spend time with His Word every day. That's why we need to be grounded. That's why we're having these classes coming up. That's why we have the equipping library. That's why we have the men's study and the women's study. That's why we teach all of the Scriptures verse by verse. Lord willing, we're going to have a midweek study at some point. And, and that's going to be going through the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. It's important to have a steady diet on God's Word because if you're not grounded in God's Word, you're going to be fall prey to this stuff because he says, look at the motivation. By the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. These deceivers go out and they are very planned out things. They're very judicious in the sense of being planned and being all these deceptive things. And by ourselves, apart from being grounded in God's Word, we're going to be deceived. There are all kinds of people that I've talked to over 26 years of being a Christian and 13 years of being a pastor where they think they're sure, they're right, this is exactly what the truth is. They've heard this compelling argument. There was a very anointed person that proclaimed this to them. They, they, they've even had some kind of experience, and it's not even biblical whatsoever. In a simple little, I mean cursory, surface-level inductive Bible study with the passage, they realize, oh, I was completely deceived. Deception is not recognizable. That's why it's called deception. We have to be anchored by the Word of God. He doesn't want us to be tossed. He doesn't say tossed by your fro. He says tossed to and fro, like all over the place. The whole picture is instability. The whole purpose is getting hurt, having damage. False doctrine just doesn't do just a little bit of damage. It does a lot of damage. It has implications in your whole family, all the way down to your kids and everything. It's, it's really, really dangerous. We have to be grounded in God's Word. Now, we're going to see the other pillar. The first pillar of making disciples that has to happen in a church is the leadership equipping properly, and part of that is feeding and tending. Now, we see the other part, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is Christ. It's literally truthing in love in the original language. Our whole being, everything about us, everything that we think about, how we deal with people needs to be all about the truth. That's why he says you need to be grounded and not tossed to and fro. When that happens, you're so grounded, everything that comes out of your life is is, is about the truth. And we do it in love. Truth without love is cruel. We need to do it in love. That's the motivation. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's God is love. So we have to communicate that in love. But notice he says, but may grow up. He wants us to keep growing. He says, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And he says, a perfect man and all of those things. Like, it doesn't stop. And God doesn't allow us to choose how far we grow. If we're dying to ourselves daily, taking him our cross, following him, he gets to decide the, the, the extent to which we grow. We don't say, you know, I'm good, I'm comfortable. 
I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm content. I don't need to grow anymore. That doesn't exist in Scripture. Because if we follow him where he leads, think about following somebody. And you're, you're, you literally are walking down the road. And you don't know where they're going. But you know that that's what you need to do. And you just are walking. And after about 10 miles, you go, I don't want to go any further. And they say, but that's not where we're going. We, we're not going 10 miles. We're going what I decide we're going to go. And so you go, okay, all right. And you keep walking. And then you get there, and it's a thousand times better than what you, where you stopped at 10 miles because they had your best interest in mind. See, that's what growth is. Growth is fruitfulness. Growth is the abundant life that he's called us to. He's called us to have a, enjoy abundant life. But it's not hoarding life's resources on ourselves and focusing on ourselves. That's a trap. It, it's, it's focusing on him and others. What are the greatest commandments? So love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second commandment is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So of course that's going to be what we're about when we're among God's people. Loving him, loving others. Well, what about me and my needs and all that? Doesn't, care, doesn't God care about that? Absolutely he cares about that. But the way that that happens is not by you directly chasing after it. The way that it happens is you focus on him, you focus on others, and then you're developed and you grow and all of those things. It's not by your direct participation and, and chasing after that. It's by you chasing after him and blessing others. That's what he wants because he wants us to grow into all things, into him. That's the, that's the goal. Look at that, the end of verse 15. Into him who is the head. Where he's been talking about the body, the body, the body, the body. We've been studying a headless body <laughs> until we get to verse 15 where he's the head. He's the head of the church. Not me, not the senior pastor. He's the head of the church. He's truly the senior pastor. I'm an under-shepherd of him. And so for all of us to recognize that he's the head, we need to grow into... See, that's the thing. As you grow in your walk with him, you grow closer to the head, which means you get more sustenance more direction, more leading, more blessing, all of that. Is a body less blessed or more blessed the more it's connected to the head? It's more blessed, obviously. But notice he said, now this is the second pillar in verse 16. From whom the whole body, that's, he's saying from the head, from the head, the whole body joined and knit together. Those are anatomical words there in the original language. It's talking about a, an anatomical spiritual connection that we have. Interdependency. Everybody is interdependent. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 12. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12. It's beautiful. It's a whole other study. But then he says, join and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every, notice there's a repeating word, inductive Bible study right there, in two times, repeating word, every, every part does its share causes growth. There's our word grow again of the body for the edifying or the building up of itself in love. The first pillar is the leaders, the office gifts called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The second pillar is everybody else using their gifts. Remember, that theme has been going all the way through Ephesians chapter 4 in the context of unity, how the body is supposed to function together to be the place of disciple-making that God's called it to be. So you have that other pillar of everybody using their gifts, and no one's left out. That's why I said every, twice. Every joint supplies, every part does its share. If you're not serving somewhere in the body of Christ, you are not helping the church be what it's been called to be and to do. Disciples are not being made as much because you are not doing your part. You're not using your gift to function in the way God's called you to function to build the body up. See, churches that only have that one pillar, it's all equipping of the leaders and nobody's using their gifts or it's minimized greatly where people are not serving one another, they're not serving, they're not building and all of that, all of that up, then it's not going to be the disciple-making place that God has called it to be. And disciples won't be made as well. Then some churches are all the other pillar, but not this part. Everybody's doing their gifts, everybody's serving, everybody's all of that. There's no equipping, there's no feeding, there's no tending, there's no leading, there's all those things. And that becomes a rudderless church that doesn't make disciples too. So he's made this beautiful template for us. He hasn't left it up to us to decide how it's supposed to function. We just have to get in line with how he's prescribed it to be. 
My job is to feed. My job is to tend. All those things, he's given me grace for that. Your job is to use your spiritual gifts and serve and build up the body of Christ. I can't do your role. You can't do my role. But when they're both functioning together, whoo, now we're cooking with gas. Now it's happening the way it's supposed to happen. And we are growing in that. I'm growing and doing what I'm doing. You're growing and doing what you're supposed to be doing. But it's very important that we're functioning how God's called us to function. Our church is entering another phase. I believe that's why God's interrupted everything with this today. We're going to a new building. It's not about a building. We could be anywhere. But it's a whole new chapter. He's told me to prepare for a harvest. I don't know specifically what that means. I have no idea. But he's told me to prepare for a harvest. In the last few months, I've been doing that. They're preparing for things related to a harvest coming. But this new building, it's going to require some things. And building and all these things and new phases, growth, our church is going to grow. It's going to grow numerically. People are going to get saved. We're going to be in a whole other area. The reason why we are drawn to that building years ago, and when Hope approached us, Hope Ministries approached us about that building, they had no idea we'd already put an offer in on that building, a lease option to buy that was rejected because they wanted it to be purchased outright. And after that, a group purchased the building and donated it to Hope Ministries. And then Hope approached us and said, would you like to, to lease it? They had no idea. But the reason why we were drawn to that building is because it's right in the middle of a needy area, like one of the neediest areas in the city. And so that's going to require something from all of us. Not just, even if we weren't in that area, there's going to be a lot that God requires of us related to that building. It's going to require, but there's growing pains. And it, ca- it means all of us need to be patient with the process, with one another, with things not quite going right, all of that. It's, it's, ministry's messy. It is. We have to be gracious and patient. So it's going to require all of us to step up in many ways. New, some of you have never served before or it's been a long time, God's called you to step up and serve in some capacity. Some of you are serving already. That's amazing. That's great. But maybe he may add to, to your ministry for this season. I don't know. We have to all take those, those things to prayer. It's going to require all of us to, to, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We're going to have construction teams of people helping with the renovation. There's a lot of renovation that ne- that place needs. So we're going to have construction teams and all of that. We're going to have a design team that's going to design. I'm not going to take the criticism for anything that that place looks like. I'm going to be one little part of that, that, that. I know I've gone through this before. I know how this works. Who, who chose that? Me? Oh. <laughs> okay, that makes you feel great. You know, there's more than one way to do something. There's more than one way to have something look, of course. And, and we're not going to be there forever either. God's probably going to move us somewhere else. So We're not supposed to get too comfortable anyway with any facility and all of that, but there's going to be children's ministry servants that are needed. Our children's ministry is going to grow. We're going to be doing lots of outreach to kids, harvest parties, vacation Bible school. Next year, we're going to plan for a lot more kids so that we don't, we can't, we couldn't even go out and hand out flyers because we'd already reached capacity. It's going to be totally different. I bet you next year we're going to have 150 to 200 kids somewhere in that range uh, being in that neighborhood. Can you imagine having bounce houses out in the parking lot for harvest party and any way to bring kids in to preach that gospel? We're going to be doing that. I'm so excited about it. We're going to be doing way more outreach. Part, one of the things that was required for us to lease this building is that we had to do a lot of outreach. Isn't that amazing? We had to submit a vision paper. We're going to be aiming to do these outreaches and all of them. It goes beyond what we're doing now. What a, what a great arrangement for us. We're all about outreach. And now we're, now we're going to be held accountable for it. Beautiful. That's great. The Manteca Gospel Mission is already in that building. A food pantry is already in that building from another church. Where they're still going to stay there. We're going to work with them. Anthony wants to do feeding every day out of that place. I don't know if the city will let that happen, but he wants to do feeding out of that place. He wants to do a service just for homeless people that don't feel comfortable going to a regular service. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Our children's closet, our children's clothing closet, those things are going to be able to be there. I mean, there's all kinds of things, and it requires us to be flexible. It requires us to step up, to respond to the needs. We're going to be asking you, uh, you know, do you want to be a part of this and that? It requires finances, too. We don't have any money for this thing. 
When you see the inside and you go, what? You don't have any money in this? You know, but God's going to provide. He always does. If you want to give towards it, just give your normal giving and add to it because all extra funds are going to go towards this project. And, and so I know God's going to do so much. And, and so it's important. And I've gone through building programs before and building things. And it's important. And I learned this a long time ago. It's very important that things are done in a way to where we get in there and we know it was the Lord. It wasn't one person. It wasn't some gimmick that we did. It was, it was the Lord. So we're all there giving him glory for it and not looking to anybody specifically. And we're just amazed. That's what he wants. That's, that's the thing that will bring him glory. I'm so excited what God has for us. This, this church, he's building, he's adding to, he's using. We just have to remain usable. We just have to remain humble. We have to be spirit-led. We have to be directed by him. Pray for us. Pray for the leaders. Pray for, pray for the church because it's going to require us to, to be yielded completely, completely to him for his glory. Amen? Are you ready? All right, let's, let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful to be in the middle of your will. We want to be anywhere else. We are so excited about what you're going to do. We're so grateful, Lord, that given the chance to do things how you want to do them biblically, you do far greater than what we could ever do in so many ways. Help us all to remain yielded to you and what you want in building your church. Direct your people, Lord, in their gifts and their areas of service, Lord. Use this whole project and this whole move to bring us closer together, to love one another in greater and greater ways. Help us to be patient, Help us, Lord, to be gracious with each other. We thank you, Lord, that you care about those people in those neighborhoods and you're sending your people there. May you raise up a massive, massive army for you as things get worse and worse in this world. Thank you, Lord, that you said that you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We honor you. We thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. We bless you with our faith, Father. We thank you, Lord, that it, anything that you do is not by might nor by power, but by your Holy Spirit. May it be for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.